Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. My name is Jeffrey Zakarian, and you are listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian from iHeartRadio. In Four Courses, I'll be taking you along for the ride while I talk with the top talent of our time. In each conversation, I focus on four different areas from my guest's life and career. And during those four courses, I'm going to dig deep and uncover new insights and inspirations that we can all use to fuel ourselves to push forward. My guest for this episode has spent time at the top of three different media companies during major revolutions in American culture. He's been a pilot for 50 years, logging more than 7,000 hours of flight time, and he happens to be my boss here at iHeartMedia. Without further delay, please enjoy my wide-ranging and warm conversation with Bob Pittman. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you first for coming on, and then I'm going to thank you for having me on, because you are my boss, I guess. I, I, I think at best I'm your partner, at, at worst I'm groveling, but uh, we're delighted to have you with us. For my first course, I had to hear about Bob's childhood in a small town in Mississippi, especially because of how sharply it contrasts with his career as a big city media executive. What was it like as a boy being in... Brookhaven. You, you know, it's interesting. I think um, I grew up in the 60s primarily, and so there were a couple of currents going. On one hand, you had this sort of idyllic life of, you know, you would walk out of the house, and my mother would say, be home by dinner time, and she had no idea where I was, and I just had to find stuff to do, go poke tadpoles in the creek with a stick, and, you know, there was no... TV to watch, and I was too young probably to be totally interested in music, and 
And the big uh, entertainment was the mosquitoes were very bad, and they would have these trucks that we would call them the fog trucks, and they would come up and down every street every day with, I suspect, spraying DDT. It was a big fog. And the kids would get their bicycles. It wasn't like the the ice cream truck. It was the fog truck. And everybody would get their bikes, and they would run and pedal (laughs) into the fog because that seemed really great. And my mother would say, don't ride your bike in there. It's dangerous. A car could hit you. Never once thinking the DDT could kill you or there'd be something bad about those chemicals. So there was that going on. And then there was sort of the dark side, which I think as a kid you don't fully appreciate until you get older, which was it was this segregated South when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. When I started school in Mississippi, it was there was whites only and colored only bathrooms and water fountains and schools. And by the time I graduated from high school, my high school was 50-50 white-black. So everything happened in that period of time that I was growing up. And obviously, you know, the civil rights movement made a major impact on my life and my families as it did everybody else. So, you know, it's that, that contrast of good old Americana and very dark old segregationist South. Wow. I mean, that is really incredible. And your dad was, uh, I understand, a minister, a Methodist minister. Methodist minister. And by the way, that was probably one of his big causes was the whole uh, civil rights movement. And uh, fortunately for me, I grew up in a household where he was on the right side of that uh, for the South, a fairly liberal household. And, you know, got a lot of values which were really important to me and from he and my mother. So do you think that your, your father being a minister, his oratory... Did that influence you at all? Did you go and watch him speak? Did it, did it have something to do, maybe a little spark, about what you ended up doing? Yeah, it's funny. My dad was actually more of a theologian than a preacher okay. and, uh, and wound up actually at his career in the intellectual. He had gotten his master's from Emory at the Divinity School. When I was growing up, both of my parents were college graduates, which I think at that time only about 2% of right. the households yeah. had both parents. And to have a graduate degree put him in probably the 1% education. We had no money, but we were well-educated. And my dad was much more of a thinker and very much someone trying to do the right thing and thinking through moral issues and and trying to figure out how to convince people as opposed to bludgeon people. And it's in such a sharp contrast to today where we all want to shout our opinions at each other and vilify anybody who has another opinion as opposed to looking at someone who has another opinion and taking a step back and saying, hmm, if I really believe I'm right, how do I convince them? And if I'm convinced I'm right, why am I hesitant to have a discussion? Because, you know, the only reason you would be hesitant is you're fearful that maybe you're really not right. But, you know, it was good training for me because I think in life I've tried to look and have an open mind toward everybody and trying to figure out why, why do they think that. My, my mother was this unusual uh, woman, and, and in my, my household, I, and I didn't realize this was unusual until I got to be older, that I never saw my parents fight. And in our household, you couldn't say hate. Hate was the bad. We don't hate anybody. We don't hate people. And so she was open. And, and one of my cousins remarked to me once, which was true, he said, you know, the worst I ever heard your mother say about somebody was, I wonder why they want to be that way. And, and hers, when somebody wow. had sort of a vile personality, it was more of a curiosity in my mother's part. Like, why would somebody think that? And I think that unpacking stuff probably had a major influence on me because I find myself even today, pushing 70, 
that I find I'm still wildly curious about why people feel what they do. And I'm most drawn to people who have opinions completely different than mine because I don't understand why they think that way, and I actually want to know. And I, and I find out, you know, in a world like this, the more we can understand people's assumptions and how they arrived at that conclusion, the better our chance is of perhaps convincing them to change their conclusion. They probably won't change their conclusion. They'll probably change an assumption which might lead to a changed conclusion. So I, I think I got all that from both parents at, a, at an early age. I mean, I, I know that that is a remarkable test of tolerance and patience that your mother would say such a thing because it's really, it's actually very sophisticated response to not having anger at someone and not judging someone. There's a non-judgmental judgment and it's rarefied to have that. Well, you know, one of the greatest gifts we can give somebody is lack of judgment, just to understand somebody. And it's very hard. I think the older we get, the very harder hard. it gets. But I, I, I do think, you know, my, my brother and I both grew up poor but we grew up with great parents, and I, I think we were. My dad passed away when he was 94, the last one to go. You know, my brother remarked that we had indeed won the parents' lottery, that we got great parents, and uh, I'll take that over anything else. Wow. So growing up, you had the gift of gab, the gift of theology, the gift of loving parents. What were you eating, Bob, at the table? Come on, we haven't talked about any food whatsoever. Oh, Not boy. that we're going to talk about food a lot, but what were you eating? What was a. Give me a, the day that. You, everything stopped. The world stood still, and mom and dad say we're eating X, Y, Z, and it's a habit, and you got to do it. Well, uh, let me take you back in time. Rural okay. South, people had been dirt poor, and if you were dirt mm -hmm. poor, you ate fresh food. Yep. If you made it and you had money, you could eat canned food and processed food. So I was Is in that, that generation where my mother would come back from visiting her mother and bring a bushel. Uh, peas and butter beans, and my brother and I had to shell them all, which was the most miserable task in the world. Only raking pine leaves or pine needles is worse in terms of childhood tasks. So we ate sort of whatever came out of a can or processed, or whatever was fresh but grew there. I didn't eat broccoli until I was 18 years old. I never had a slice of pizza until I was 18 or 19. I did never seen an artichoke. And so wow. it was sort of local stuff is what we ate. And it was sort of meat and potatoes, tuna fish casseroles, fried America. everything. Fried okra, fried, fried catfish, fried. what If you can fry it, it's great. One of my uncles once said, you know, I like ham any way you fix it, as long as you fry it last. <laughs> So um, what did you fry it in? Was it lard or or? Oh, yeah. Fat, you, well, usually fat? what you do is you start every morning cooking bacon, and then you take the bacon yeah. grease and use it all day for everything. And can I tell you how good everything tastes with bacon grease? Bob, it's really just... good. But I was a painfully skinny kid, so I could eat everything and could not put on weight. When I came, when I left the South, I was six feet tall and weighed 120 pounds. And my dad, who had been skinny as a young kid, said, don't worry about it. It'll catch up with you. For my second course, Bob explains how he rapidly climbed the ladder in the radio business and how he landed in an exciting and dangerous place called New York City. Uh, leaving the capital of bacon and fried food, where did you end up that you started to make some, some dollars, you know? What year was that? I know you did a lot of things in DJing, which I was just so happy to see that you were just like right in the DJing. And I think that DJing at your time when you were doing it 
wasn't the glamorous job it is now when I know DJs are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a night to do well, we a two-hour gig. My DJing was really a radio announcer. And remember, in that era, there wasn't much media. You couldn't, no. there was no social media. You didn't know what was going on. That person on the radio told you most of the information you heard. And it was a yep. very intimate relationship. And I started out at, at, on the radio at age 15 in this little town in Mississippi because I needed a job to pay for flying lessons. I always loved airplanes. Yep. And the only job I could find in town, the only job was as a radio announcer. And then I got... But wait a minute. How did, how did you... Did you have to go in and like audition for that? How yeah, do you audition I, I, for I that? actually... My, I told my parents, I want to take flying lessons. I figured it out. I know where to go. And they said, well, you better get a job. And so I tried to get a job bagging groceries at the local supermarket, the Piggly Wiggly. And they said they didn't Piggly have any. Wiggly. All the, all the good jobs were gone. And I walked into a radio station. And there was a guy on the station, and Bill Jones, a little daytime station. signed off when the sun went down. And I said, do you have any jobs? He said, do you have good grades? I go, yeah, pretty good. He said, do you get in trouble? I go, not really. And he goes, come in here. Put me in a little room with a tape recorder. Tore some some wire copy off. In those days, you had teletype machines that would print out the news, printing it out constantly. Tore some off, said, read this. I read it into the tape recorder. He came in, listened to it, and said, that's good enough. Go down to New Orleans, get your third-class radio telephone operator's license, which means I could then run the transmitter, and uh, you're hired for $1.65 an hour, and you got to sweep up when you finish your shift and uh, clean up the place. And I go, great. And that was fabulous. And that began my career. And by the way, in those days, I could rent an airplane, a two-seater airplane, for $10 an hour. So, you know, $1.65 wasn't bad. And, but then I got very interested in radio, and off I went in, in a radio career. Went to college my freshman year in Jackson, Mississippi, and was have been on the underground radio station, the mm-hmm. 102.9 Stereo Rock in uh, Jackson. <laughs> and that was a tasty track from uh, Dr. John Jackson. Night Tripper. And so it was that kind of station. Then I went on the Top 40 station, WRBC. And so people in town sort of knew me a little bit because these signals went all around the state. And I got really interested in it. And then I got a job in Milwaukee and went there right in the summer after my freshman year, intending to come back to Mississippi. But then the station's competitor had a sister station in Detroit. They hired me there. I went there. And then I convinced somebody to let me program a station and be on the air in Pittsburgh. And I had a big success, and I was 19. And NBC hired me in Chicago when I was 20 years old and then sent me to New York to WNBC when I was 23. And I was on my wow. way to this great career in TV programming. And then the guy who was my great mentor and was, by the way, Lorne Michaels' mentor and Dick Ebersol and a whole bunch of guys at NBC named Herb Schlosser got kicked upstairs at RCA and they put a new guy in. And I go, oh, my star's fallen. And this company called Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Corporation, half owned by American Express, half owned by Warner, came to me and said, you know, we're, we're starting a programming company to create these specialized networks, which we'll need for this new era of cable as they build out major cities. I think only about 18, 20% of the country had cable at the time. And then they convinced me to come over and start these new networks. I started the movie channel, then I started MTV. We had Nickelodeon, et cetera, and we later changed the name to MTV Networks, and, and I became the CEO. But that was sort of my career. And, you know, the good thing about money was... I, we didn't make any money. We lived in free houses, parsonages. And so, and by the way, if you were the 
the son of a, or if you were the family of a clergy, you could go to the country club for free. And by the way, when people would shoot some doves and squirrels and all, they'd bring them by the preacher's house. So we ate well, we lived well, we had no money. And I made more money than my dad made by the time I was 18 years old. So I never sort of thought about I'm not doing well financially. You know, later in life, well, I made more money. But, 77, uh, 77 in New York. And when exactly. I came to town, someone, you know, some old timer said, okay, let me tell you about the town, kid. And he said, okay, when you see somebody that looks like they may get ready to mug you or something, just put your hand in your coat like you got a gun. They don't know whether you do or not, so they'll move on to the next person. This is the advice I'm getting. I do and the same when, thing. When now, you're walking on the street and you see somebody on the sidewalk, you don't know who they are. Just walk in the middle of the street. And, you know, these were the lessons of New York. It was very much a, a, a tough town. But there was also, I found at that moment, people from all over the world who thought they had something and wanted to prove themselves came to New York. And there was this incredible cauldron of creativity, new ideas, people finding themselves, testing themselves. And, and I, it was just a magical moment. And by the way, Studio 54 was in full swing, and somehow I was enough of a minor celebrity to get on the VIP list when I needed to and get in. And it was, it was, it was fun. And it shaped me a lot, obviously. And the meat market was the real meat market. And it was, there was meat of all kinds there in the meat market. <laughs> it wasn't what it is. It wasn't Disneyland. New York wasn't Disneyland. It sort of turned into it. At all. South Street Seaport, the, the subways were just almost unusable. Well, un, the unbearable. Un, the graffiti was nice, but it, what came with the graffiti was just un, intolerable. It's kind of ama- amazing that it actually existed for so long in that state Yet it still had this romantic pull that got me, that got you, that got all these people. It's kind of it's it's a remarkable testament to that city. And you found that I think a lot of people from very small towns are drawn to the big city. Uh, like a lot of people I know who grew up in New York say, "Come out to California. It's great. The weather's perfect." Like, I'm not looking for good weather. I'm looking for excitement. And now L.A. has changed a lot, but back in those days, L.A. was the stereotype of laid back, not good food, not much to do, but great weather. And New York, was, if, yeah, New York was the town that if you wanted to stay up all night and see the sunrise on your way back home, this was the town. L.A. closed up about 9 o'clock at night. It still kind of does. Yeah. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. For the third course, we hear all about how MTV came to be such a massive phenomenon, from their original theories for content creation to how they fought off gigantic competitors. I remember watching MTV for the very first time, and it filled many holes of desire. How did you, how did you know, because you must have known, that the visual was now going to be more impactful than just hearing the music? How, how did you know, and how did you go about programming something so complicated and on what sort of rails and you know guardrails did you use so you could keep it at a g level or did you or did you care well yeah yeah, well that's a really good question let me let me unpack it a little bit when we started mtv the idea the concept was that you had a generation that had grown up with rock music and grown up with tv but the two had never come together My Mm -hmm. thesis was the reason they had never successfully come together was because people kept trying to make music for the TV form, which was story arc and narrative. 
as opposed to trying to make TV fit the music form, was which was all mood and emotion, especially the early days of MTV. We didn't have shows. We played videos. It looked like a video radio station. And so that was the basic thesis. There were about 250 videos that we could get our hands on. That's not enough to have a channel. But the, 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 the calculated risk was that if we played those 250 videos and MTV was a success, the music industry would make more of them. And by the way, if we weren't a success, it didn't matter whether they made any more because we were going out of business anyway. Uh, so that was the idea. <laughs> but it, it caused us to say we want this thing to be all about attitude, mood, and emotion. Fred Seibert was the really the great creative genius who was pulled together the on-air look for us, which really defined MTV was our signature. And Fred and I, he did one of my podcasts with me, Math and Magic, which we talked a lot about though that moment in which we're trying to figure out what is it going to look like? What is it going to be? We don't want it to look like anything else. And one of the reasons it was so radically different is we didn't have the money to look like everybody else. Fred said, you know, yeah. Bob, if we try and do what everybody else is, looks, is doing, we'll look like a cheap version. But if we do something really different that costs us a lot less, no one will know we're cheap. We'll just look different. And that was probably the most important uh, concept that we used in building MTV. And everything we did just looked so different. We broke every rule, design, you know, music, television, everything. And, uh, you know, we would have people who came out of TV in the early days and said, well, you can't do that. And I go, why not? We'll have a shadow on their face. I go, who said that's a bad? Who said you can't have yeah. a shadow on their face? It's like we challenged every rule of that's not the way it's done. And almost Who are your competitors? They really weren't any. There were people yeah. who were trying to do a lot of stuff with video. I'd done a TV show on NBC in 78 called Album Tracks, hosted it. And I'd done that. There were a lot of other people doing it. There was a, a, a network out called Video Concert Hall out of Atlanta that played just a bunch of videos. But none of them clicked. It was sort of like the automobile until Henry Ford came along. We cracked the code on how to take video music and make something out of it. And that was the real success of, of MTV. So when did, so they, then VH1, which is dis, is different than, how did you say, okay, we have MTV now, VH1. What was the audience you were looking to chase that you didn't have, that you needed another station? It was called the Fighting Brand. Okay. When I had the movie channel, it was really successful. And then HBO invented this service called Cinemax, and they just put a stop to our growth. And Lou Gershner was the was the president of American Express at the time, went on to IBM fame, and a lady named Central Meyer, who's, who passed away a number of years ago. And they were sort of these mentors to me in marketing. And they said, Bob, that's a fighting brand. I said, what's a fighting brand? And so the fighting brand is when somebody has a successful product and somebody competes with them. Instead of having their successful brand compete, with this new brand, they start their own new brand so that they slug it out and leave the big guy out of the fight. So I go, wow, that's a nifty concept. So Ted Turner came after us with MTV with the cable music channel. And he was trying to get into a fight with us. So I go, well, look, I had this done to me with uh, Cinemax, uh, Turnabout's Fair Play. We launched VH1 as a fighting brand. I'm going to fight, I'm going to use VH1 to fight the cable music channel and keep MTV out of the fight. And Turner went out of business in about 34 days with the cable music channel. And VH1 lived on. Even at, well, it was, it was a fighting brand. It did its job. But now we got this new network. 
And so sort of we, like QVC, QVC having HSN, a lesser brand, but it's the same pot of money. Yeah. And by the way, so, you, so look, when I was, I, I've always done it since. And when I had AOL, we used CompuServe and and Netscape as fighting brands for us. I just think it's a it's a great way to do business with multiple brands. So two questions. When did you realize it's going to be a, a monetary, a monetizing giant, a cash machine? And then how do you go about raising dollars to say, do then an VH1 or did the ad dollars just pay for everything because it was such a sensation? It was, how did it you was, convince It was not a people? sensation in the beginning. Okay. This was the era before venture capitalists would throw money at you. You had to get a company to let you do an idea. By the way, I, in the end, owned 1% of MTV, even though I'd started. By the way, I owned more than anybody else did, so that was great. But you had to convince people. And the board of directors would not approve the idea, the board of directors of the Warner Amex joint venture. So we had to get Jim Robinson, who was the CEO of American Express, and Lou Gershner, the president, in a room with Steve Ross and his deputy, David Horowitz, and give them the pitch to do this. And they had to say yes to it. It was an, a very early hit with the consumer and a dismal failure with the, on the financial side. Now, I was the creative guy. I was building the product. And at a certain point, they came to me and said, hey, kid, you think you can run the whole thing because everybody else had failed. And, and, and we did. But it was the board of directors probably would have shut us down a couple of times had it not been for Steve Ross, who ran Warner Communications, saying, no, 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 we'll figure out how to make money on it. We're going to keep it alive. But we, it was the, the Warner Amex joint venture hired a guy named Drew Lewis, who had just been the transportation secretary for Ronald Reagan, who fired all the air traffic controllers, a very tough guy. I remember character. that. I remember that day. Tough guy. So Drew takes me to, by this time, I'm the chief operating officer of the company. I'd had a little bit of a political battle with my boss who had decided that once MTV started getting all this attention, he wanted it and tried to throw me out. And his boss realized what was going on and made the other change. But they moved me up to COO, responsible for the whole line of business. And he took me to, to lunch and he said, okay, Bob, I think it was March. You have until the end of the year to get profitable. If you can't, we're going to shut it down. <laughs> end of story. So I, I mean, I'm never a cost cutter or anything. I was the creative guy. I'm the guy who wanted yeah. to spend every penny you could get. I yeah. learned so much about how to do great stuff cheaply. I learned how we go get every dollar we could in revenue, and we didn't count on the ad agencies to do it. How do we go directly to the clients? How do we give them these great promotions to suck them into MTV, even though their agency said, don't buy that new media thing called cable? And I, by the end of the year, by <clears throat> I think it was December, we turned a profit. And I went to Steve Ross thinking, I'm going to go tell him, Steve, it paid off, and he's going to give me an attaboy. And I go, Steve, I need to see you. I come over and I go, Steve, guess what? We're in profit. And he, instead of saying, good job, Bob, he says, okay, here's what we can do now. And it's at that moment I realized that success is, there is no success. It's just a stepping stone. And when you step on it, you got to keep going. There's some, because you did that, you can do something else. That was the moment we realized we had something. Now, no one could have ever imagined it would be as big as it became, nor Nickelodeon or any of those services. And every time we would talk about them being big, people would laugh at us. By the way, the big we were talking about in retrospect, it was very small compared to what it turned into. But there's also a lesson in that, which is that when you have something that's going to be really big, people just can't fathom how big it can be. When I was at AOL, 
we gave Google our search traffic. And I think we took about 10% of Google as, a, as part of the deal. And at a certain point after I left in the AOL Time Warner days, someone sold that 10% for a couple of billion dollars. That would be worth over $100 billion today. But no one could fathom that Google could be no. worth that much money. And uh, no one could fathom that, that Facebook could be that, that big. I, I bought through you know, so the Silicon Valley crowd bought some Facebook stock very early for about $3 a share. When it was in the 30s, I sold most of it. I go, wow, a 10x return on my money. <laughs> Today, it would be a 100x return on the money. Yeah, so Warren Buffett just, sold Walt Disney, 50% of Walt Disney in 1966 for a $5 million profit, which was double his money. And he thought he, exactly. he made it. You and, know? And, and I guess, look, there's no problem in taking profits. But the point of the story is that you just can't fathom how big, big you can can't. be when you're breaking into something. I mean, we're going through it right now. You and I are on it, on podcasting. How big's podcasting going to be? Is this going to be, know, is me. this going to be as big? I mean, broadcast radio is huge. Is this going to be as big as broadcast radio? Is it going to be bigger? Is it going to be as big as video? Is it going to be OTT video? It shows no signs of abating at all or diminishing or slowing down. So it's one of those things where I sort of smile and chuckle because everybody's trying to project it. I go, well, you know, no one's going to be able to project it. But I think you watch it and just say we've tapped into something that's so essential yeah. to people and so important to them that I think this is another one of those. I remember in 89, I was upstairs. There was a small gym at the Royalton. And I used to go up in the middle of the day and just work out because I was working 100 hours a week. And I was running on the, on, on the treadmill and MTV was on every single TV back then. And VH1 was on the other three TVs. And next to me was Madonna. She would exercise in the afternoon. This is 87. So she was a star, but she was still like hanging around the Royalton. And she was on. And I remember her singing, watching her, her thing. And I'm like, wow, this is... I didn't quite get it. I didn't grasp it because it was 87. But now I really understand what, it, what had happened. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And for my final course, we discuss tequila and lifestyle. Bob tells me how he entered the top of the tequila marketplace, how he thinks about food decisions, and what he sees for the future of New York City. So we're going to talk about like tequila because I'm fascinated. Good. I'm Let's in go the food to tequila. business. So how in God's name did you get from this point in your life to AOL to doing a tequila? I believe it was 2008, was it, that you launched in 2009. Nine, okay. Started building in 07, 08. And I had um, when I, I retired. Why tequila? Why not like a, a a dark a dark spirit? Yeah, I was actually not interested in the spirits. I was sort of interested in tequila. I retired in 2002, and was sort of a little bitter because I had worked full time since I was 15 and had never taken any time off. And all these people talked about in mind when I was in college and I backpacked around Europe. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't <laughs> wait. And I and part of that. And for about eight years, I. I it, invested some and had a small private equity fund, but was goofing off a lot just in sort of seeing life. And I had a house in a small town called San Miguel de Allende in the middle of Mexico, up in the mountains. And I noticed that the expats drank this bootleg tequila, or so I thought it was tequila, they claimed it was, that was so smooth you didn't have that wince factor where you got to shoot it or use a lime and salt because, you know, when you you taste it. And, and I had a lot of it. I was, it came in plastic jugs. And one weekend, my son, who was the, at the time the hotel manager at the Wynn in Vegas, comes down, brings his buddy who runs the nightclub at one of the, the hotels, and we drink this. And the next morning, he said, you know, Mr. Pittman, 
I get $1,000 a bottle of Cristal in my club. I could get $10,000 a jug for this. So now the business person in me goes off. I ding, ding, ding. I think, wow, who do I know in the spirits business? That's a good idea. And I got back to New York, and the answer was no one. About six months later, at a party in Brooklyn, and I meet this woman, and we're just chatting. And I go, what do you do for a living? She goes, I run Jose Cuervo in North America. I go, ah, this is fate. <laughs> Quit your job. Come be my partner. I have a great idea. Man, she's never met me, mind you. It took me a couple of months. I convinced her to leave this great job, come be my partner, and we started Casa Dragones. And, you know, she was, of course, smarter, much smarter than I was, and really, you know, her baby more than anything else. And she called me from Mexico and goes, Bob, I have bad news. I go, what? She said, I put that bootleg stuff through a lab. It's not tequila. They mixed aguardiente with tequila to make it that smooth. And said, but I have an idea. So I went down a couple of weeks later, and she convinced the master tequila maker of Mexico to come out of retirement to do one more tequila. And so we taste this stuff, and he looks at me and goes, as a process I've always wanted to try on tequila, I think I can make it this smooth out of 100% agave. I give him a little bit of money to build a quote-unquote lab, and about a year later, they come back with all these variations on the theme, and we picked one, and that became Casa Dragones. But our, our concept was, we want to be, I don't want to differentiate this tequila based on marketing. We want a differentiated product. And if we can't make it, let's just shut it down and we'll go back on it with our lives. Great. Then we did that. We said, okay, and if the connoisseur, once we had it and we thought we had it, so okay, if we can't convince the great tequila connoisseurs that this is the best tequila in the world, let's shut down and let's, let's don't throw good money after bad. We passed that. And then, you know, so each one we set a milestone for ourselves. But it was a very high bar that we had to have a great tequila. And by the way, we're not going to develop, it was $275 a bottle for that Hoven. So we're not going to do a mass product that could sell for 50 or 60 bucks until we have established ourselves as the best tequila. And only then did we do a Blanco. And by the way, only after we sort of got the Blanco started did we do the Añejo, which has been, it's been a monster hit. But it's fun. It's fun for me because it's it ties to something very authentic. I get to collaborate with brilliant people like Berto Gonzalez, who is the, the co-founder and CEO and dear friend of mine. And we're able to sort of take this thing and, and sort of see what started out as a let's give it a try and turn it into a business that's, uh, that's really meaningful. It was very different. Uh, I remember who turned me on to it was Scott Conant, the chef, fr- chef friend of mine, who I worked together with on Chopped. He said, you have to try this tequila. And I was never a tequila drinker. And I'm now a tequila drinker. And that was, I, I tasted it in 2008 or nine. We had just started filming uh, Chopped together. And I remarked to him, I remember that it's, it's, a, it's a sip, it's, it's good to sip. So... That's how I, I do it now is I just take it and I sip it almost like you would sip, I don't know, a fine cognac. And, and it's extraordinary and it's so different the way you came at it from a quality level versus a marketing level. There's a, a couple of great tequilas that's come out, a couple of tequilas, let's say, that have come out that have been marketed like hell and made billions of dollars. And I'm sure you know what I'm saying about it. Nothing wrong with that. But it's it's so it's so refreshing to hear about like you know the quality, the quality product winning out, and surviving on the shelves on its own. And you're not surviving; you're thriving. Well, you know, for us, it was also a it's a labor of love. It was like a, a, a winemaker, and we decided very early on this will not be a bling product. We have plenty of bling people that love it, but we've resisted the urge to make it about them. We've marketed through great chefs as you know, and through the art world. And said, we want people with taste 
to really embrace this. In Mexico, Enrique Overa to Pujol in Mexico City, we expected to do not much business in Mexico. And suddenly, for years, we did half of our business there because Enrique found it, loved it, and spread the word to others. And Gabriel Orozco, the great artist, loved it and took us to pour at all of his great shows at MoMA, at the Pompidou, at Tate Modern. Just, you know, it, we found our place and that matched what we were doing, which we were doing a fine product. We said, look, we're in no hurry. Like a fine wine, we're going to let people discover this. We're not going to bludgeon them with lots of advertising or big push. And for a while, I carried around a couple of bottles of other tequila and Casa Dragones. When people say, oh, this is as good as whatever, I go, well, put it in a glass here. Let's put them two side by side. Now you tell me. And in Mexico, people sort of have a reference palette. You don't have to pour the other tequila. In America, I find <laughs> you have to pour the other tequila to have them go, yep. wow, that's a lot better. But, you know, it's, it was a nifty trick for us. It's a terrific product. And I, I remember we, we, we sell so much of it at Lamb's Club. It's sort of like you can tell. And we sell, it's a premium tequila, and there's not even a thought about the price. No one even even questions the price, which is a, as, as a retail you know, restaurateur. It's like when you don't question the price, it's all about the quality and the experience. It's, it's a real success. So hope it continues. Thank you, and thank you for your support too. So what is it? So you, you're, you're. I'm not going to ask your age, but you seem like in terrific shape. How do you take care of yourself? And what is it that you do when you wake up? And what makes you like, like, get to the gym or eat right? Or what? What is it in your mind? I I, I go. To, I, I work out going? for an hour every day. And yes. run a little bit, the mile, not enough to tear up my knees, enough to give me conditioning. You won't want to hear this. But I, no. somewhere along the line, made a click in my head and said, food is fuel, food is not entertainment, food mm-hmm. is not a pleasure. And it, it's still hard because I fall off the wagon and go for the pleasure. But the more I can just sort of say, I need this much of this, and I need this and this and this, and here's the balanced diet, and here's what I should be eating, it keeps me in much better shape. Now I'm, you know, at that, that age, as I began to push seventy, go, wow, I, you know, I, I can either have a lot of fun and probably live shorter life, or I can have a reasonably longer life. I hope if I take care of myself. So it's this idea of trying to to push it, and you know, by the way, so much luck, who knows? But at least I feel good, and I feel like I'm in control as opposed to my life controlling me. Well, I also think that you, you've realized, and a lot of people don't know this, I mean, I'm in the restaurant business and everything is free, you know? All the food you want, all the booze you want, everything's free all the time since for a very long time. And I think that you need to learn the lesson as you go through life is that food isn't the enemy. It's, it's really not the enemy, and you can enjoy good food. And I think restaurants nowadays, to your point, you can go in a restaurant and say, you know, I'd like that tuna that I have, but I just want to grill with some lemon and some of that broccoli, Rob, nothing else, don't put it in, just give me that. And that's beautiful. And that, to me, is what a restaurant should be. And that's what I am to all of my restaurants. We say, whatever the customer wants, it doesn't mean they're right, which is, is something you don't have to, you don't have to, they don't have to be right. They just have to have a desire that you, f- you fulfill. That's it. So if you can do that, it's possible to eat out at a restaurant. So you pick your favorites that will do anything you want for you. And you can still have entertainment and have fun and still eat correctly. And that's, what, that's, what, that's what's happened now, I think, because more people with fast casual, the fast casual world has changed dramatically so that you can actually get 
you know, some healthier choices, basically in a keto zone or Mediterranean zone that you couldn't do 20 years ago. I think you're exactly right. And I think we also have a better understanding of what is good for us and bad for us. And to me, the biggest enemy for me, I'm an addict, is sugar. And if I can stay off sugar, I'm in great shape. And that little monster comes up and I can be off it for two or three years at a time. And then somebody says, here, have this piece of cake. And it'll take me a year to get back off sugar again. Wow. Sugar is it, right? Sugar is, you know, if I had to say one thing that I tell people to watch out for, it's not fat. It's, it's, it's sugar. Cane sugar is, is probably the worst thing you could put in your body. But thankfully, there are a lot of sugar substitutes. But I'm the same way. Chocolate to me is, you know, or great ice cream or like, you know, I grew up Armenian. So we, it's all we ate was sugar and, and it's all fantastic, all the desserts. But sugar is, you know, and it's why we like alcohol so much because there's a lot of sugar in there. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So you're, you work out every day. You have gotten a, you've found a way to make food your friend, not your enemy. So you're, you're doing great. You got your food under control. Are you flying? And, and are you still flying yourself back and forth or wherever you go? I, I'm and what, are bit, you, what are you certified on? I, I've been a pilot for 50 years. I have a Falcon 900. And okay. I'm type rated in the 900. I'm type rated in the Falcon 50, the Falcon 20. Westwind 1, Westwind 2, and I have an airline transport pilot's license. I have probably about 7,000 hours, but I haven't wow. flown in the past year because during COVID, I couldn't go back to school to get, which for the insurance company, you need your annual uh, certification. And so I haven't flown for a year. Yeah, I, fly, I have a helicopter. I fly the helicopter some, mm-hmm. but I, I miss the plane in some ways. But I also say, you know, I'm getting to that point where at what point are my reflexes not good enough for me to be sitting in the left seat? I gave up motorcycles two or three years ago because I tend to ride a little fast, and I, and I had ridden motorcycles my whole life, and I finally said, you know, my reflexes aren't what they once were, so I got rid of the motorcycles. I hope I don't wind up getting rid of flying completely, but I'm realistic about it, and it's been great for me because I've worked my way up from very small planes to big planes, and I used to fly across the country, and I'd have to stop five times to get from New York to L.A., and it would take me about 14 hours, but it was Not a anymore. grand adventure, <laughs> and I saw so much and did so much on all those cross-country trips that I wouldn't trade it for anything. Wow. Well, lastly, how is uh, New York? What is your, you're sitting there in NYC. What, what is your gut feeling about what's happening and I was there a couple of weeks ago, and it felt kind of hollowed out to me. I, I must say, I'm a, a lifelong New Yorker, and 40, 40 years of being there, it, 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 you know, there's, there's a thing called mojo. I don't know if it's real or not, but it felt like there's, there was less of it. I just that was my. It, gut. it is so many people I know have moved to Austin, Nashville, Miami, California, and I don't know what it's about. I think I hope people haven't lost confidence in the city, but you know, it's these things go in cycles. And I do think that, and and I think it's unknowable right now because what we don't know is how much will people really work remotely. You know, it's one thing to work remotely when everybody else is working remotely. It's going to be a little weird to work remotely if everybody else is sitting in the office and you're trying to zoom in to them. And I think think probably the next year is going to be a really critical time for New York because this is a city that is a city because people have to come to the office here. If they don't, what is New York? And what, yeah. what sacrifices will people make and what alternatives will they find? I don't have, an, I don't have any idea. 
but I, I do think we're getting ready to get into an experiment we've never seen before because we've never been in a situation like this where so many people learned technology and where we have this amount of bandwidth that would enable this. I mean, you couldn't have done this 10 years ago. You know, this Correct. Zoom call couldn't happen 10 years ago with the bandwidth we had. So what does that mean? I don't know. But boy, it's fascinating. You're in touch with a lot of people. What is your you know, Cognacetti say about all this and what are, what are you hearing on the street that is, I'm hearing so much that I, I have to, it's very, it's a lot of white noise, but you know, they're telling me that the inventory, the hotel inventory is very much in, in, in flux because of, you know, the hotel restaurant industry operates with the froth, the waves, the highways. When it's frothy, everybody's doing great. When the froth subsides, you have a very large slice of of that industry that can't survive the cost of doing business right. in New York. I, I think what do you hear about that? I think, look, I think that's you've hit it right on the head. I think that is the issue for everybody. This is an expensive city to live in. It's an expensive city to do business in. And if you want to cut cost, that's a quick way to do it. And if you need a lot of revenue to support your cost and the revenue is not there, you have no alternative but to shut down. And I think that I... I I, or look, downsize. Yeah, or downsize. And some people can't downsize. It's sort of, you know, either A or B. And um, so I, I'm, look, I love New York, so I'm, I'm very hopeful. But I think we'll, you know, have the next 12 months will tell us a lot. Bob, I look forward to sharing a tequila with you and maybe a grilled piece of fish. Done. I'm ready. Like that. We'll, we'll go to Milo's. I'm, we'll, you know, you eat very clean there, a little tomato salad. I uh, love it. Some fish. Fish with capers and maybe uh, Retsina, a nice uh, Greek wine. Thank you very much for believing in me and uh, having me as uh, a podcaster. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I loved it. Thank you so much. And thanks for all you're doing. Thank you very much for listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian, a production of iHeartRadio and Corner Table Entertainment. Four Courses is created by Jeffrey Zakarian, Margaret Zakarian, Jared Keller, and Tara Halper. Our executive producer is Christopher Hesiotis. Four Courses is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. Our research is conducted by Jesslyn Shields. Our talent booking is by Pamela Bauer at Dogtown Talent. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.